Genesis 3 and beginning in verse 8. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray. Father, we do, as now we come to your word, uh, fall upon your mercy to instruct our hearts, asking you to do the work in our hearts to speak to us from your word. Teach us today, Lord. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. For most of my uh, childhood years, my dad came home from work at the same time every day, 4.30. He had over an hour commute, and I'm not sure how he ever got it to happen the same way, that it was like clockwork. You could set your clock by it. 4.30 was when he got home. And I can, to this day, remember the sound of his motorcycle coming down the driveway. We had a long driveway, gravel, well, it's not as long as I remember it was when I was a kid, but, you know, it was long to me back then. Gravel, you hear the gravel crunching under the tires. And I'm convinced that the reason I remember this sound today is because of my guilt. Because there was nothing that I feared more as a kid than those words wait till your dad gets home. And I wasn't nearly as bad as my brother, but I did get into my fair share of trouble. You guys can remember that when he visits in a couple weeks. Um, I did get into my fair share of trouble. And I'm convinced that the reason that I remember that sound is because I remember the sound of judgment, whether my dad intended it to be that way or not. Well, even if you can't remember something like that, or maybe your childhood was different, uh, you still know the feeling that I'm talking about. It's that feeling of driving down the interstate and seeing the police car turn around and the blue lights come on. It's that moment that you're talking about somebody to someone else, and that person walks around the corner. It's that moment that you're yelling at your kids or your spouse, only to realize that the door or the window is open, and there's your neighbor watering the lawn, staring awkwardly in the window. It's that feeling of being busted. You're guilty and you know it. And it's something that we can all relate to. The desire is to run and hide, right? That's what we want to do. And maybe that's often what we see kids do when they're in trouble. But that's, that is what Adam and Eve did, our first parents. They broke the commandment that God had given them. And as we come to this text today, we see that they attempt to run and hide. Last week, we looked at the temptation and the fall Adam and Eve had broken the prohibition that God had given them not to eat from one specific tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And their first reaction we saw was to cover themselves. They were hiding their shame from each other. And this week we see how they attempt to hide their shame from God. But as we all know, that's futile, isn't it? We can't hide anything from God. 
In today's text, we see them attempt to run and hide, but even more than that, they, they take it one step further and they begin what we call the blame game. They begin pointing fingers at everyone but themselves. You know, there wasn't that many that they could have pointed their fingers at. <laughs> but they accomplished it, didn't they? They managed to blame everyone that they knew of at this point um, but themselves. Well, the blame game, even though we talk about it in this context and we think of it with children, uh, you walk in the room, everybody starts you know, pointing fingers immediately. Adults are not immune to this. I mean, we see this played out in the news stories of the day. Political parties doing this back and forth to each other. Everyone's always blaming the other for whatever problem is of the day. Corporations, when corruption is exposed, what do executives do? They point blame at everyone but themselves. And even though uh, it may not make it into the nightly news, we know this at an all-too-personal level in our own relationships, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs. We know the blame game. I don't even think we can argue that it's a learned response. I don't think you have to teach kids how to do this. I think we, because of the fall, because of shame, because of guilt, desire to cover up. We desire to run and to hide when our guilt is exposed. And yet, as troubling as the story is, as sad as the story is, we see, because we know the rest of the story, uh, that grace is coming. But grace even comes in this story because of the way God reacts You know, God could have simply judged them instantaneously, and yet he doesn't. And he doesn't wait for them to come to him, but he goes to them. He shows up, and he uses a series of questions to draw them out of themselves, to help them see at the heart level what their problem really was. Their problem wasn't this woman that you gave me, or the man, or the serpent, or anything else, the tree itself. The problem was their own heart. And that's what we see the Lord God draw out today. And so beginning in verse 8, we read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Again, he could have spoken one word. He could have annihilated the garden and its inhabitants, and he would have been completely just in doing so. But instead, he comes to them, the text says, in the cool of the day. Your text may say something different. This, this passage has some wiggle room in terms of translation, in terms of how it is translated, both with the phrase, the cool of the day, as well as the sound of the Lord. The sound of the Lord God is translated in the ESV, as I read it, as him walking. And that's a, that's a fair translation because the phrase is used in other contexts in Scripture to describe walking and the sound of walking. But it's also translated in some, in some versions as the voice of God that there was a voice, and certainly he spoke to them. We see this. Um, But I think that uh, it lends itself, the story itself, the way that the text flows, that even before God speaks, they heard him coming. So whether this was a theophany, a a revealed form of God, and a pre-incarnate Christ, if you will, or whether it was just his voice, the point is the same. God made his presence known. Before Adam and Eve had come to him in repentance, had come to him acknowledging their sin, God comes to them. We don't know how much time has passed either, and this is something that we like to, we like to wonder about. The text doesn't tell us. Some think that this all happened very quickly, maybe even the same day uh, as the sixth day of creation or a few days after. Some think that some time had passed. I tend to lean toward the latter because it seems like there was a pattern here that they expected God to come in the cool of the day, that they heard the sound and they recognized the sound that it was God. 
So it seems to me that they were anticipating by these things something that had already happened, some kind of fellowship that they had already enjoyed with God in the garden. And so what do they do? Uh, They run and they hide. But this was new to them. You have to think about this. All the other interactions they'd had with God up to this point had been without fear and shame. And so now they are experiencing fear and shame for the first time. They, their first attempt, as we saw last week, was to cover their nakedness from each other. There was that horizontal shame that they experienced. And now we see the vertical. And they try to hide, interestingly enough, in the trees, something that we would expect children to do. The writer uses the personal name of God. It's translated Lord God in the English, Yahweh Elohim, again. We saw this introduced in chapter 2 after the initial creation account to show that God is both imminent and uh, close and transcendent, a holy other far above all. And he joins these two names together to show the personalness or the, uh, the closeness of God to his creation. You remember last week that when Eve and Satan interacted, they did not use the personal name of God. They only referred to him as Elohim. Part of what this does in introducing, he uses it twice in verse 8 alone, is it shows us the foolishness of what Adam and Eve were trying to do. I mean, who can hide from the one who knows all things, sees all things, and is present among all things? You can't do it. And yet, this is what the people of God attempted to do at Sinai. When they came to the Mount of Sinai, they heard the sound of God, it says in Exodus 20. And what was their response? The people said, uh, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. There was a fear of judgment, a fear of the recognition that they knew they were guilty. It's that sound of the gravel under the tires that judgment is coming. That was what they experienced. You know, sin leads us to do foolish things. Sin in and of itself is foolishness, and it leads us to even more foolishness. Lies have to be covered up with more lies. Guilt leads us to want to run and hide. It's a snowball effect. And what we realize in doing these things is that nothing can fix the problem. Nothing can solve the problem that we've made in our sin. The only thing that we can do, and it's the only wise thing that we can do, is fall on the mercy of God and repent. I mean, the analogy of anything you want to think of when you've totally blown it and you're completely guilty is that no excuse matters. When you get pulled over and you, what do you immediately try to do? You, it, this doesn't happen. I'm not, I know I use these examples all the time. You probably, probably think I'm a horrible driver. I am. But anyway, you immediately begin to think of all of these excuses. And do the excuses matter? No, they don't matter. Our guilt is our guilt. So the only wise thing we can do is repent. There's not an exception to this case. Because God is omniscient, because He knows all things, there is nothing that we can do to hide our sin from Him. The psalmist expresses this reality in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? It's clear then that Adam and Eve knew they were guilty by their action to run and to hide. They should have approached God they should have gone to him as the gracious gardener, as, the, as the, the perfect potter who made them, who was full of mercy and love. But in their foolishness, they run and they hide. And then we hear God ask them this question, where are you? In verse 9. 
Did God need to ask this question? Did he wonder where they were? Of course not. He knew exactly where they were. This is a rhetorical question because, of course, God knows all things. He asked these questions for them, to draw them out, to help them see the foolishness of their own sin. The kindness and justice of God is manifest in how he asks these questions. Now, the questions, interestingly enough, are all posed in this first uh, verses 9 through 11 in the masculine singular. Who is God going after? God's going after Adam. Because it's just like when mom and dad left home and they said to the oldest, typically, you're in charge. Adam had positional authority. He was created first. It sets before us a pattern that we see in marriage today. And the irony isn't missed then that who did, Eve, or who did Adam or who did the serpent go after? He went after Eve, didn't he? We saw this last week, the attempt to conquer and divide. And so uh, the same model of asking this question, where are you? We see this with, with Cain after he kills Abel. God comes to him and asks him what? Where's your brother? Did God not know? God knew. But he uses this to draw Cain out to see and realize the horridness of his own sin. God's kindness is designed to lead us to repentance. That's what Romans 2, 4 says. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so it is the work then of the good shepherd to lead us, not to drive us. That's how, he, that's, that's how he works. He works like a shepherd. He could drive us, but he leads us instead as a kind and good shepherd. Adam's response to God's question is, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So Adam acknowledges his fear before God. Remember, this was a new experience for him. He had never experienced fear or shame up to this point. And he gives his reason as being his nakedness. But, of course, nakedness was not the problem. This only opened up the opportunity for shame. The problem was that Adam broke the commandment of God. And he was silent when Eve ate the fruit. He stood there passively. Sin brings shame. And shame does have its place. Shame does accomplish something for us. Without shame, we wouldn't realize the weight of our guilt. We wouldn't realize how heavy it is that we've broken the commands of God. Our culture today, unfortunately, attempts to reduce or remove all shame and sin. And some, in some ways, this has crept into the church. But it never works. Reducing or removing shame only brings more sin. And guess what? More shame. It's a cycle. It's a cycle that Paul writes about in Romans 1.22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. See, whenever we attempt to cover our shame ourselves or run from our shame or hide or redefine our shame or whatever we try to do, it only produces greater guilt, which then produces more shame. So because God is holy then, He has every right to pronounce judgment when we sin. But here's the hope of the gospel. 
His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Remember this. Write this down on your hearts to remind yourself of this gospel truth. That God in His kindness desires that you walk in faith and repentance. It is foolish to try and hide from God. It is foolish to try and run and hide behind the trees. It is wise to repent of your sins and come to Him and seek His forgiveness. So while shame has its purpose in leading us to repentance, it is part of the kindness of God. We don't have to live under the weight of that shame anymore. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are positionally in a different place in Christ. There is forgiveness found only in Christ. We have only to come to Him to confess our sins and to have faith in Him and to fall upon His mercy. So when you sin, don't hide like Adam and Eve, but instead hold fast and believe that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Come to Him and seek the forgiveness that He offers to us. Repent and believe and rest in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Adam's hiding was only the beginning of the problem, though, wasn't it? Because he goes on into this blame game. We've already seen how his hiding was futile, but now we, attempt, we see his attempts at blame, how futile they are. God asks this other question, Who told you you were naked? And he doesn't wait for an answer. He immediately asks another question that has the answer in it. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So he's making all the connections for Adam. He's connecting the dots and helping him to see where the problem is. But Adam doesn't get it. He needed this indictment to see the problem. And the indictment of God's word to us when he pronounces what the problem is is indeed a good gift because it helps us to see that we are the problem, that we need forgiveness. It doesn't show us only the holy standard that God has, but His Word indicts us when we disobey. That's one of the beauties of His Word. And even though it's a painful thing, we remember that it's this process that God uses to lead us back to repentance. And so Adam, unfortunately, says, The woman you gave me to be with, or you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. I mean, this is classic nursery behavior. I mean, this is just exactly what we'd expect from kids. And you notice that it looks like he's blaming the woman, doesn't it? But who's he really blaming? He's blaming God. You gave me this woman. You gave me a bad gift. It's faulty. I want, to take it, I want you to take it back. Is there a warranty, right? I mean, what was Adam thinking? The good gift that was the woman, that when no other helper, when no, no other mate, no one else to identify with and communicate with was found, Adam's acting as if he had been set up. This is, this is a setup, right? And it's exactly what we do uh, when we sin. You know, the reason I got mad and cussed out the driver was because he cut me off, right? We're constantly blaming someone else. I gossiped about the neighbor because she never shuts her mouth. I mean, maybe these things don't happen to you, okay? Maybe it's, I don't know. Pointing the finger, right, is this knee-jerk reaction that's, that's, because of the fall, is hardwired into us to point at others and to blame them. But in this time, Adam actually is blaming God. You gave me a bad gift, is what he's saying. Adam was present when Eve was tempted, wasn't he? He had the opportunity we saw last week to stand. He knew the commandment God had given him. He was not innocent. 
he was not only passive, he went beyond passivity and joined in the act, eating the fruit as well. And I've said this many times, and I'll probably say it again, but this is just like, you know, there were four of us. I'm the youngest of four. We're all born within five years of each other. To say that there was some conflict once or twice would be an understatement. But mom was always very clear when she came in and we started this business of pointing fingers. She would always say, you're accountable for you. I'll deal with Rob in a minute because it was almost always Rob. Uh, <laughs> I'll deal with him in a minute, but you're accountable for your actions. You're accountable for you. And this is what God does with Adam and Eve. But as if blaming God wasn't vile enough, he then does blame Eve. She gave me the fruit, he says. I mean, it's like Adam is sitting there with a machine gun just spraying bullets of blame at whoever he can hit, and he manages to cover everyone. But the blame was his and his alone. Yes, Eve did sin. God would confront her in a minute, but Adam was created first. He was given the command first, and he was expected to lead in obedience. The buck was to stop with him, and he failed. God was not amused, certainly. In fact, Galatians 6, 7 says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. God had given Adam the responsibility of teaching. He gave the command to him before he created Eve, and he expected. And Adam did teach it because when the serpent came, Eve repeated the commandment. She knew. Now, she added some stuff to it. We won't go back to that. But she did know the command. He had done that, but he had failed to do it effectively. Adam failed in his role. He remained passive and silent, and then... He himself partook of the fruit, and he was about to reap what he had sown. God then turns the question to Eve. There was nothing else Adam could say. The case was closed, right? The, the, the defense had to rest. There was no more room for any kind of evidence that would support his case. But Eve, who was also created in the image of God, had knowingly sinned against God in listening to Satan and following temptation. And in verse 13, the question to Eve is, what is this that you have done? In the Hebrew, this is as much an exclamation as it is a question. It wouldn't be improper for us to say, what in the world have you done? That was, that was the thrust of the question. So God does go and deal with Eve. She's not off the hook. She is also responsible. And Eve's response is the modern equivalent of, the devil made me do it. You pick that up? I mean, that's what it sounds like. It was the serpent, right? But that's not a legitimate excuse. It's never a legitimate excuse. In the same way that Adam could not blame God or Eve, she could not blame Satan for her sin. None of us can. Again, it's never a valid excuse. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also, also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Some people take this verse and and, uh, kind of twist it to mean something that it's not saying or they misunderstand it. And what you often hear people say is that God will never give you more than you can handle. And that is a misunderstanding of what this verse says and means. That's not what God promises us. In fact, God often does give us more than we can handle. He does this so that we would run to him for help. Paul and talking about the thorn that he had. And he had asked three times for God to remove it, and God had left it in place. This is what he said that Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
So when we face more than we can handle, it is designed to push us to run to Christ, whose grace is sufficient. But that's not the meaning of the previous passage that I read about temptation. It's rather about difficulties and afflictions. Now, the verse in uh, 1 Corinthians speaks specifically to the temptation to sin. And what he's saying is that no temptation is too great that we can say, someone else made me do it. The devil made me do it, or anyone made me do it, or I just couldn't help myself. It's never a valid excuse. Paul says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. In writing it this way, he's saying, because it's based on God's faithfulness, it is a promise. It's a promise that you can take to the bank. God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can resist, but he will always give a way of escape. And so when you are tempted to sin... We're never to follow the, the, the example of our first parents pointing the blame at each other, but instead fall on the mercy of Christ in repentance. We're to turn from sin and receive the full forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. In closing, let me just say this about the centrality of trees in the story. You've noticed that the trees have showed up a couple of times, haven't they? We see first there are two special trees that were made in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, they broke that. After they sinned, what did Adam and Eve try to do? They hid where? Behind the trees. And then we see the tree of life show up again. We'll see this in the coming weeks in another verse in chapter 3, where after they sinned, it says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned, away every, turned every way rather to guard the way to the tree of life. So here is this, these trees that keep showing up. But I want to mention there's one more tree that we should consider. You know where I'm going here. God would send his son into the world to live in a way that we have been unable to live, sinless, without blame, without guilt. And then in your place and in my place, Jesus was hung and crucified on a tree that was the cross. This tree, this cross, that is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So if you're running and hiding, trying to hide, remember you can't, (laughs) But if you're trying to hide from God, you will never be able to cover your guilt and your shame. You have no way to remove the stain of shame. And if you've tried for very long, you know how futile it is. Running and hiding only produces more of it. And it's a burden that you can't bear. It's a burden that will drive you insane. Come to the cross of Jesus. Come to Him in faith and find forgiveness so that your heart is not hardened, so that it doesn't become a stumbling stone. Repent and turn from your sin and fall on the mercy of Jesus to save you. Trust in Him today. And you, for, for, for you who are Christian, I want you to hear this as well. As you battle daily against sin, look to the cross and know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The guilt of your sin, the guilt of your sin has been fully and finally dealt with on the cross. We still experience shame because we still know guilt in this life, but that's not where we're to live. We are to come to the cross and be reminded of the work of Christ on our behalf, that we walk in repentance and faith, 
Resting with confidence in the finished work of Christ. Not swimming in the sea of guilt and shame. Know that your sins are forgiven. That the shame has been erased. And that His love holds you and carries you through this life to the glorious life that is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the work on the cross. That shamed tree, that tree of a curse that You, Jesus, were hung on for the sin and the guilt and the shame that we did, that we earned, that is ours. We thank You for the forgiveness that we know, the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus, atoning for all of our sin, leaving nothing unfinished, that we may know with confidence that we are Yours, that we are held by You, and that when You return, You will take us safely home. Would you give us a glimpse of what that means for us right here, right now in our lives to know that we walk in safety held by you and that indeed there is something that awaits us that is far beyond anything that we imagine, that is far beyond anything that we could even hope or dream of, that is something far greater than any of the sufferings or the difficulties or the sadnesses or the brokennesses that we experience in this life. Would you give us eyes to see this, Lord? And would you encourage our faith and strengthen us today? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.